Roman crucifixion is a brutal way to die. His back torn open from the whip. The victim would be tied and strapped to the crossbeam. And he'd be asked to drag it through the busy streets of whatever city, let's say Jerusalem. And with his arms and hands tied to the crossbeam, when he stumbled and fell, there is no way to break his fall. And so the weight of the crossbeam across his shoulders and back of his head would grind his face into the stone road. The place of crucifixion was always near a busy city gate along a busy highway. Rome was trying to make an example and wanted as many people as possible to see what happens to anyone who dares mess with the might of Rome. And so the victim would be crucified so his eyes were at eye level of those passing along the street. When they got to the place of crucifixion in the first century, they would take the victim and lay him down on the ground on the crossbeam, and they would take a spike and they would drive it through his arm just below the elbow, right about here, between those two major bones of the arm, being very carefully not to cut through the artery. So right here and right here. The Greek word in our New Testament that is commonly translated hand, that word is kser. Kser is also translated arm. Your hand or your kser in Greek is anything and everything below the elbow. And so with the victim arms secure to the crossbeam, they would drag the crossbeam and the, and the victim over to the post that Rome would, be, would leave standing in the ground between crucifixions as sort of a single finger grim reminder. And they'd lift the crossbeam with the victim attached up on top of the post and secure it with spikes. Next, they would take the victim's legs and they would bend his knees under him, either straight back or more commonly, they'd twist the victim to the side and take one big spike and drive it right through their ankles into the post. And so the position of crucifixion is hunched, twisted, and low. The official cause of death of crucifixion is death by suffocation. Long, slow, excruciating suffocation because with your body attached and crunched low, your diaphragm can't expand and it's hard to take a breath even right now for me. <laughs> and so if the victim needed to take a breath, even involuntarily our fight for life, he'd have to push against the spike and pull against the spikes in his arms just to raise himself enough so his diaphragm can expand to take a breath before he comes back down. And that repeated motion, eventually the spikes in both arms would slowly tear along those two bones until they would become lodged in the wrists. A good crucifixion squad could keep a victim alive for several days. Again, wanting to make an example, a grim reminder of what happens when you mess with the might of the world.
Roman crucifixion is a brutal way to die. And it's how Jesus died. A Bible expert once asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? What's the most important one? Another Bible expert once asked him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And each time, Jesus quoted Shema from Deuteronomy 6. And each time, Jesus quoted the second greatest commandment from Leviticus 19. As our choir makes their way back to their seats this morning, I invite you to stand with me and with all of us, please. And let's, let's dedicate our time together this morning before God by reaffirming our commitment to love God and love others. We will again read the Hebrew responsibly, and then let's do the English together. First in Hebrew, please say these words after me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheka, Bechol Levavka, Uvahol Nafshaka, Uvahol Meodeka. Ve'ahavta reacha komocha. Amen. Together in English, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. And all God's people said, Amen. Please, you may be seated. I'd like to share with you this morning a story, and it's a story that I shared with you about three years ago. This is the first time I've ever repeated a sermon. I've altered it a bit, but not much. And I've chosen to do it in our series of God Loves Us because this story is so good and so clearly tells us about God's love for us and I think it needs to be repeated from time to time. It's a true story that begins in a desert some 4,000 years ago. God visits a man named Abram. And during their time together, God tells Abram his responsibility. Walk before me and be blameless, God says. Be perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but that's got to be the mother of all possible responsibilities out there. Be perfect. I wonder what Abram was thinking when God says that to him. Great. Be perfect. But that's what God tells Abram he must do. Can you imagine? There sits Abram in his tent one night out in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere and suddenly God shows up and says, Abram, I am your shield and your very great reward. And do you remember what Abram says? Thanks, God. No, not quite. For you see, Abram is Jewish. And so he replies, well, a whole lot of good that does me. Where's my kids? I don't have any children. You haven't given me any. Sovereign Lord, who could if you could, but you haven't. And the Jews call this chutzpah. (laughs) And I mention that because chutzpah is one root for our English word faith. Did you know that? Faith includes intense, passionate, real, authentic, persistent, honest questions to God. God loves it. When we tell Him what we're really feeling, no matter if it feels irreverent from time to time, God can handle that. He loves an honest question. 
And so Abram says, but I have no children. And so God shows Abram the stars and says, Abram, that's how many children you will have. And Abram says, that's good enough for me. I believe you. And then God says, what's more, I'm going to give you this land. And of course, Abram says, land? What land? I don't have any land. How can I know for sure I'm going to get this land? Prove it. Give me a guarantee. And so the Bible tells us that God makes a covenant with Abram. Covenant is a fancy word for a promise between a greater and a lesser party. So in the covenant between God and Abram, God is obviously the greater party. And what did He promise Abram? Well, we just covered two of the things God promised Abram. Descendants, one of whom who would be Messiah, and land. Now what about Abram's promise? I mentioned it. Do you remember what Abram's obligation is? Yes, God appeared to Abram and said, walk before me and be blameless. So Abram's responsibility under the covenant is to be blameless. Great. So that's what's at stake here between God and Abram. Abram says, land, prove it to me, God, that you will give me this land. And God says, in effect, Okay, Abram, are you sure you know what you're asking me? Go and get me five animals, a cow, a sheep, a goat, a pigeon, and a dove. Now, when reviewing your Bibles later, as I hope you will do, I'm combining the accounts of Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And you come to this instruction by God, see if it strikes you like it does me, What a bizarre thing for God to ask. Go get five animals. And if you think that's bizarre, bring me five animals, look what happens next. Abram, without asking any further question, not only goes and gets those animals, but without any further question, Abram kills them and then cuts them in half, the Bible says, from nose to tail, the long way. And then Abram arranges their bodies so that their blood would flow into a little depression or path, if you will, between them. He makes a blood path between the half-bodies of these animals. Now, how do you suppose Abram knows how to do all that? As far as we know, God doesn't tell him specifically to do do this bizarre-sounding thing. He just says, get the animals. So how does Abram know what to do with them? Well, one compelling explanation is that Abram knew exactly where God was going with this. He knew what was going on. He didn't need to ask or be told what to do. He knew that this was the way of confirming a covenant, a relationship, a promise in the culture of his day. It was well known that a lesser party to a covenant brings the animal or animals, and the greater party then takes the first step to make the covenant or promise. Here's the idea in another context to help illustrate. Come with me to a Bedouin camp in modern-day Israel. It's night, and we're sitting with maybe a 100 people around a blazing fire. And suddenly a whole other group of people show up together, and a party breaks out. And then, just as suddenly, it gets very, very quiet because a young girl, maybe 13 years old, has stepped forward from one group on one side of the fire and her father is there standing next to her. And then we notice that a young man and his father has stepped forward from the other side of the fire, from the other group, and so there the four of them stand facing each other And you can hear a pin drop. The loud celebrating is done. And there's a seriousness that's settled on the crowd. A a great sense of anticipation is in the air. And all eyes are fixed on the boy, the girl, and their two fathers. 
And now we notice that the two fathers are discussing something in earnest. The discussion is urgent and intense. And we realize, because someone whispers next to us what's going on, these two dads are making arrangements for this son and this daughter to be married. And so this goes on for some time until their discussion finally comes to an abrupt end. It's been agreed to. And the silence now grows even heavier than before. The boy and his father sit down, and the girl's father steps away from the fire for just a few seconds, and then he comes back, leading, dragging a small little lamb. (laughs) And then that man takes out a knife, a very sharp knife, and he cuts that lamb's throat in a way that's painless. And we all watch as this little lamb quietly falls to sleep as it bleeds to death. And we notice that the lamb's blood is being carefully directed and carefully collected in a little depression in the stone next to the fire. And after the bleeding has stopped, the lamb is taken away for the meal that's going to follow. And then the father of the boy gets to his feet. And he walks to the edge of the puddle. He bends over and he takes off his sandals. Steps to the edge of that puddle. Looks to heaven. Maybe looks back to his son. And then he steps in there into that blood and he starts stomping and splashing around in the blood and the blood it splashes all over it gets up on his legs it gets up on his robe if you're sitting in the first couple of rows you're getting flecks of it on you and that pungent smell of warm blood fills the air now what that father of the groom is saying in the culture of that day to the father and family of the girl he is saying if my son isn't everything I just promised he would be if he is not a hard worker if he is not a good father if he is not a faithful husband then you may do this to me And now, it's the girl's turn. And so the father of the bride does the same thing and promises to the boy and his family, if my daughter isn't everything that I promised you that she would be, if she's not a good mother, if she's not a virgin, if she's not caring and hardworking, whatever it is that they promised, then you may do this to me. And let me tell you something. If that boy is abusive, if that woman cheats, you will find in the bottom of a ditch, not either of them, but their fathers. And their throat will be cut. And there will be footprints in the dust, in their blood. The divorce rate in that culture is very, very low. (laughs) Now, what's that got to do with Abram? Well, If Abram is at all familiar with the making of a covenant, and it seems he is, he's preparing this blood path all on his own, what do you think Abram is thinking as he butchers these animals and prepares the blood path between them? I mean, he had some time to think. I mean, he cut a cow in two from nose to tail. That alone has to take some time, yes? And I'm not so sure Abram was in a hurry. And why not? Why do you think, what do you think Abram is thinking? 
Well, God promised land and descendants, yes? One of whom who would be Messiah. Does God have anything to fear about keeping his promise? Well, no, he's God. But what about Abram? What's his responsibility again? Oh, yeah, be perfect. Oy. So I imagine that as Abram prepares these animals, he is thinking something like, I am a dead man. What have I gotten myself into now? Why didn't I just keep my big mouth shut? God promises you land and descendants. You say, thanks, you idiot. You don't say, prove it. What a nude dick. Abram, am I stuck on stupid or something or what? Oigaval. Or something like that. And the text backs us up on this one because we're told as the sun sets, a thick and dreadful darkness comes over Abram, which is a colloquial expression that means Abram was scared out of his mind. He was terrified. And of course he's terrified. Of course he's scared literally to death. He's got to be thinking, there is no way I can be absolutely perfect. I know that. God knows it. If I get in there, if I walk through that path, if I get in that blood, I am a dead man. It's all over. No land, no descendants, no Messiah, no making my name great, no blessing to all the nations through me, no nothing. I'm about to die. A thick and dreadful darkness indeed. Have you ever been that scared? Death, especially, will do that to you. I don't care how brave you are. Death is frightening. But now, there's no turning back for Abram. And so with the blood path prepared, the greater party, God, goes first. Scripture tells us that God shows up in symbol. A smoking fire pot shows up. And we know that must represent God because the greater party always goes first. And because Scripture is full of references to God as smoke, the pillar of smoke leading the children out of Egypt through the wilderness, the smoke that settles on top of Mount Sinai, the smoke that fills God's temple showing His presence, to name a few examples. And so God in symbol, as the smoking fire pot passes through the blood. And oh, my dear brothers and sisters, do not miss this picture. Almighty God came down from heaven, and because He loves Abram so much, and because He was determined out of that love to create a plan, a path of salvation For you and me, because He loves us so much, Almighty God said in the blood and the dust of the desert, if I don't keep my promise, Abram, to you and your descendants, then Abram, you can do this to me. Consider His promise proven. Backed up. Now it's Abram's turn. I picture Abram trembling from head to toe as he steps up to that blood. I bet he could barely breathe. As soon as he could muster up enough strength to lift his leg to step in the blood, perhaps just as about Abram is to step in the blood, he pauses because there's that second symbol that shows up. A flaming torch. Fire. And like smoke, fire also represents God in Scripture. That same pillar leading Israel only at night. The burning bush. The tongues of fire at Pentecost. Again, to name a few examples. And here's the picture in the text. Almighty God walks up to a trembling, scared-to-death Abram 
whose bare foot is about to step into that blood. And God, in symbol, puts a protective hand on Abram's chest and says, No, Abram, don't. Let me. And God steps back into the blood again. And He says to Abram, and He says to you, and you, and you, and me, Abram, if you or your descendants fail to be perfect, then you and your descendants can do this to me. And at that moment, God sentenced Jesus Christ, His one and only beloved Son, to a brutal, grisly, bloody, cursed death on a cross. Can you see Jesus in heaven looking down that night as His Father, watching Him tell Abram, I'll give you my son's life for your disobedience. And our God did this. He sealed this deal with an old, shaking Bedouin man in animal blood in the dust of the desert. God loves us with an amazing love. The sacrificial system of worship that develops out of God's covenant with Abram is simply astounding. Beginning with Moses some 600 years later, worship was held every day, and sacrifices were made on behalf of the entire community every day at 9 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon. The temple in Jerusalem stood on what is called the Temple Mount at the highest point of Mount Moriah. One corner of that Temple Mount was called the Pinnacle. And the Pinnacle is where the priest would stand to blow a trumpet, a shofar, to announce for miles around, to announce for miles around that the sacrifice at nine and three was being made. An archaeologist even found the actual original piece of that corner. You see it on the screen where the priest stood, including the remaining part of the inscription that once said, the place of the blowing of the shofar. And here's how the sacrifice went. A priest would bring the animal to the altar and to the bronze sea nearby for cleansing. A cow, a goat, a sheep, a pigeon, or a dove, go figure. To remember that covenant with Abram that night in the desert, everyone would recite Shema. And then came the sacrifice. The priest lifted the animal onto the altar. And at exactly 9 o'clock and exactly 3 o'clock, the throat of that animal would be cut. The blood caught in a bowl. And then the blood would be thrown up against the bottom of the altar as a way of saying on behalf of the people, Oh, please, God, You promised. You promised that You would do for us what we cannot do ourselves. God, please keep Your promise. God said to Moses, I want you to offer a sacrifice every day at 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock for the whole nation, because no matter where they are or what they're doing, I want my children to know that at that very moment I haven't forgotten, because at that very moment I am being asked to keep that promise. And the people did this every single day, twice a day, for some 1,200 years. Now by Jesus' day, this had all developed into quite a ritual and tradition. 
and on holidays, especially during the spring festival of Passover, hundreds of thousands showed up in Jerusalem to ask God to keep His promise. There would be one priest on the altar with the live animal and another priest somewhere with a sundial watching the clock. And yet a third priest on the pinnacle with a shofar. And the priest on the altar and the priest on the pinnacle would wait for the signal from the priest with the sundial. And at precisely 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, the signal was given. And the priest took a drink of coffee. Precisely 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, the signal was given. And the sound of the shofar would echo off the hills for miles as the sacrifice was made. I'm not going to get it this morning. I'm sorry. They would practice for years. <laughs> and the sound of the trumpet would echo out across the land. But surrounding Jerusalem. Josephus tells us the shofar could be heard three and a half, four miles away in Bethlehem. And everyone for miles around would pause at their tasks while the priest cut the throat of that animal at exactly nine or three. And as the blood was thrown yet again against the altar, the prayers of the people, wherever they were, rose to heaven. God, please keep your promise. Send the one who will be perfect because we can't do it ourselves, God. Please keep your promise. Now, come with me to one of those actual services in history. It's five minutes to three. And given the high holy day, it's probably the high priest himself that day with the sacrificial lamb. And so Caiaphas is holding the lamb against the flint stone of the altar, waiting for the signal. There are hundreds of thousands of people packed into the temple courts around him. And it's Friday, the highest holy day of that entire Passover week and even of that particular seven-year period. But there's one difference this day from all the years past. For you see, on this day, nearby, just outside that temple mount, near a gate along a busy road, there are three men hanging on crosses. And the man hanging on the cross in the middle looks dead. It was unusually dark that day, so the priest watching the sundial must have been using an hourglass instead. And as that last grain of sand dropped, it was three o'clock. And the signal is given for the sacrifice to remind God, don't forget your promise. Please keep your promise to send the one. And the shofar echoes out. But up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up. And at precisely.
precisely that time. You look it up. The man in the middle somehow raises his head, maybe at the sound of the trumpet. And with one last bit of life, looks up to his Father in heaven and searches for him again in vain. For the last six hours, it's been the first time in his life that he hasn't been able to find him, and he still can't. And so in the gagging, choking, suffocating voice of a crucifixion victim, Scripture tells us that Jesus screams, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus dies at exactly 3 o'clock. Right when his people are pleading with him again, please remember your promise. At just the right time, God reached down and cut off the life of His only beloved Son. And I think when Jesus screamed, it is finished, He didn't just mean His suffering on the cross. I think He meant all of it. All of the killing, all of the blood, all of the waiting and anticipation of God sending the One. All of it. It's all finished now, Dad. Just like you asked. Just like you promised. Dad, I kept your promise. It's finished. God loves you. And it's a love that doesn't forget promises. And though it may feel like he's forgotten sometimes given the pain we experience living in a fallen world. But mark my words. Mark His words. He does not forget. He has not forgotten His promise. In the 1800 years between Abram and the cross, how many people questioned how many times whether God had forgotten His loving promise? Surely He forgot when Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Surely He forgot when the kingdom was split in two. He must have forgotten when Assyria came and rid the earth of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Or when Babylon came and destroyed the temple and took the remaining two tribes away. God must have forgotten His loving promise when the Greeks came and persecuted believers and desecrated the temple, or when Rome came and stole that very land that God promised Abram, surely God had forgotten His promise then. As kings and queens and emperors and the rich and the powerful over the centuries had their way with their conquests and plans, surely God must have forgotten His promise then. But it's at the cross we know God did not forget His promise. He kept it for 1,800 years, for however many more thousands of years since Genesis 3. For thousands of years, God was moment by moment working out His plan of salvation, working out His promise with such precision, with such providence, with such sovereignty and control, and with such love that at precisely the time His people were asking Him once again to remember His promise, Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And at precisely the time as people were asking Him once again to remember His promise, Jesus died at 3 o'clock sharp. 
despite the control the leaders of Israel thought they had, God was there in complete control, keeping His promise. Who does that like that? Who could possibly do that? There is one and only one answer. Our loving, sovereign God can and did and does that. And He can and did and does because our God, sovereign beyond our wildest imaginations, is desperately, passionately, deeply in love with His people, deeply in love with you. He is the God who cries out heartbroken after Adam and Eve's sin, Where are you? He is the great shepherd who relentlessly searches for each and every lost sheep. He is the husband who welcomes back an unfaithful wife again and again and again. He is the widow who frantically and methodically searches for a single lost coin. He is the God who is with His people in the midst of their pain, working for their good. He is the Father who every day stares at the horizon, hoping and longing and weeping for His prodigal sons and daughters made in His very image to come home. And when they do, He's the Dad who runs to them and welcomes them with open arms. He is the God, the one and only God who keeps a loving promise over thousands and thousands of years because He is our God who is desperately in love with you. And how will we respond? How will you respond to such amazing love? What will you do? What is too much to ask of you? Is it too much to ask that you love Him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, and to love others as yourself? Is that too much to ask? Is it? Twelve years ago, while sitting in the desert sun on a rock at Tel Arad in Israel, I decided it wasn't too much to ask. Not even close. And after hearing this story I just shared with you, I was overwhelmed with how much God loves me, even as I am, to give His all for that, for me like that. Some 30 years ago, Gordon Cosby, a pastor, used a term to describe God's call on your life. He said, when called by God, we are seized by the power of a great affection. I love that. We go numb, Cosby said, in the midst of a society filled with violence. And we need, in the face of that numbness, to be so moved that we break through to a place of divine power. That day in Israel, for me, I was seized by a power of God's great affection, His love. And I decided right then and there that I would do more, so help me God, to love God and love others, more than I had ever even considered before. And this week and this morning, and hearing the story again, once again, I'm seized by God's love. And I realize just how far I have yet to go. Maybe you're feeling that too this morning. And if so, how will you respond? How will we respond to such amazing love? What will we do out of our love for God and others? For our closing prayer this morning, I'd like to invite you to reflect on just that. Before God, right from where you're seated, each one of us reflect on that question. What will I do? What will I do out of my love for God and others in light of God's amazing love poured out for me? Now, to help prepare our hearts to wrestle with that question a bit, I'd like to share with you A portion of my favorite hymn, you heard it, the chorus, Craig echoed it to start with this morning. It's hard for me to say favorite hymn because I love so many. 
But if there's such a thing, if there's such a thing as a life hymn, I, I, this would be mine. It's a song about God's amazing love. And so we'll play it, and then after it's finished, we'll all just remain seated, pause where we are for a couple minutes longer in silence, and you can use that time, if you like, to do business with God if business needs to be done. So you can continue on in prayer. Simply reflect on your own life and ask, how will I respond to God's amazing love? What will I do now? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father in heaven, please forgive us when it must not seem to you that we're very grateful. When we take your blessings for granted, 
live life for ourselves. When we allow sin and temptation and distractions to consume us, when we lose sight of the cross, and we can no longer hear your words, your promise, shouting through it, I love you. I haven't forgotten you. Where are you? Father, I pray that each and every one of us would use this day to make new, whether the first time or the thousandth time, our desire, our commitment, our intent. So help us, God. So help us you, Father, to love you with all of everything we've got and to love others as ourselves. Please, Father, Anoint us again. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own power. We need yours. Open us up, Father, to receive that gift so that in power we can love a world hurting for it and show them, show them, Father, that you are indeed love. It's in the precious name of Jesus, Messiah, that we pray. Would you all stand, please, and receive God's blessing, His benediction. Here, O West Bowles Community Church, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. So help you, God. And all God's people said... Amen. Have a great day, brothers and sisters. Love you guys. Bless God.